fucking millionaire. I guess how old I am. 27. You know what that makes me here? A fucking senior citizen. This firm is entirely comprised of people your age, not mine. Lucky for me, I happen to be very fucking good at my job or I'd be out of one. You guys are the new blood. You are the future big swinging dicks of this firm. A young man who runs an illegal casino decides to go legit by becoming a stockbroker, but the firm he works for might not be legitimate itself. Special guest Mike Kahn returns to chat about the difference between stocks and NFTs, brokers who go to plumbing school, and what constitutes far out on Long Island. Then we find out if Boiler Room stands the test of time. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut. Alan says as a father, blah, blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan have their say. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of The Test of Time. I'm James Brief and joining me is my co-host Alan Noah. Hi, that's me and we are both joined by another friend of ours coming back on the show. It's Mike Kahn. Hey, hey. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good, good. Uh, for our listeners uh, who may not remember Mike, uh, how many times have you been on the show now? This is my third time. I am two away from the sweatshirt. That's right. <laughs> not and, that we're counting. And the uh, the movies that you reviewed? We did PCU. Mm-hmm. We did... Shit. I remember the movie. Uh, it was a movie where everybody was in a town and they seemed very Pleasantville. Pleasant. Yeah, there you go. I was trying to lead you on without really handing it to you. But yes, that was the second movie. It was Pleasantville. And here we are for Boiler Room today. That's right. And we're going to talk about Boiler Room. We're going to get into it. But first, I do have to mention that if you are a good Test of Time listener and you are listening to this episode right away, as you should be, and it is December 2nd or maybe the 3rd or the 4th, it's Nick's Marathon weekend. Nick's Marathon. Nick's Marathon 2022 Part 2. Uh, because we already did a Knicks marathon earlier in the year, back in March, I think, right? Yeah, but that was kind of like COVID is ending and we really want to do a Knicks marathon. Yeah, well, that was also kind of like Knicks marathon 2021 that just so happened to take place in 2022. And whatever, we just wanted to do it again. So we're doing it again. It is our annual video game marathon. We play video games for 48 hours. We raise money for our friend Nick Capabianco, who passed away from leukemia. We take the money that we raise and we use it to buy video games, video game systems, all kinds of fun stuff for children's hospitals, Ronald McDonald houses, and really give some entertainment and some distractions and some comfort to kids who really need it. Any listeners that are listening to this uh, on the day that this lodges, I'm wondering, can they play with us, Al? Sure. You should go to nixmarathon.org. You can watch us. You can chat with us. You can donate. And yeah, we'll play some uh, games that people can join in. I'm not sure exactly which games, but hey, you're watching. Chat with us. Tell us what game you want to play and we'll play with you. Oh, we're definitely playing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time. And the new one. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, the brand new game that's like in that style, but it's new. I am so excited. Excellent. 
Any donation, big or small, is is welcome. It's tax deductible. We are a 501c3 organization. Any donation you make, you will get a tax receipt for it. It's the end of the year. People sometimes like to make charitable donations before the end of the year. So, hey, if you've got some money that you'd like to donate to a great cause, we encourage you to do so at nixmarathon.org. And also, if you're listening to this podcast episode later and Nick's Marathon is over, that's okay, because you can still go to the website and make a donation. And speaking of altruistic uh, people that are into philanthropy and, uh, you know, charity in general, I think that really leads into our movie of the day, um, our movie of the week. Uh, that would be Boiler Room. Uh, I don't think you watched it, maybe? <laughs> they did talk about saving the manatees. Um, they specifically said, we are not here to save the manatees. Damn it! <laughs> that, that's, that's actually what they said. Well, so Mike, you picked this movie. And I guess my first question is, why did you want to come on to talk about Boiler Room? Well, it kind of gets into the very first scene, even before the intro credits roll. Any resemblance to names or characteristics of actual persons or businesses or to events or locales is purely coincidental. That, my friends, is bullshit. J.T. Marlin, real place. Many of these characters, real people. And uh, how do you know this, Mike? Because I worked there. What? Yeah, these, these places are real. I don't know how, how many of them there were. The one that I worked at, actually the guy who founded it, was a very tiny bit character in the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. Really? Um, he was referenced there as the crazy Chinaman. I'm not going to give real names because we're going to protect the... Well, they're not innocent here, but we're going to be nice. Okay, so so you worked at a chop shop type brokerage on Long Island in real life. I worked at this chop shop type brokerage in real life. I mean, it wasn't really called J.T. Marlin, I assume. It was not called J.T. Marlin. It was called Duke and & Company. And how long did you work there? I was there for the two months before going to college. I'm 18 years old. It's that retail or day camp. A cushioned chair, an air-conditioned office, and more money than the rest of my friends were getting, and I had my nights to myself. At the time, I had it pretty good, and I didn't really know what was going on over there. How did you get involved there in the first place? There was an ad placed, I want to say, in like the career services, career development, on the front of the office at my school. Stock brokerage looking for intern, worker, whatever it was. I'm like, okay, what the heck? Were you like Giovanni Ribisi's character in this movie where you were a trainee? Yes. Okay. Pretty much spent my days cold calling people. People in the Midwest, people on the West Coast. They didn't want people who were too close. Okay. So like his character in the movie, were you not really making any money as a trainee? Because you said you were only there for two months. When you're 18 years old in 1997 and you're making 250 a week, that's not bad for walking around money. That's true. But you weren't there long enough to like be in the vicinity of getting the million dollar paydays, the you know super flashy cars and all that. No, sir. Okay. And I wouldn't have anyway. I sucked. <laughs> you, you sucked at cold calling oh, people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's fine to be bad at ripping people off. I'm kind of good with it. Yeah. I did not know this about you, Mike. This is fascinating. I had a few interesting summer jobs. More interesting than this? Well, more fitting was probably the summer before when I split my time between a video arcade and a bakery. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know if there's a movie about someone working part-time at a video arcade and also working at a bakery. But if there is, we should have you on to talk about that movie. 
I would be happy to come on for that one. <laughs> All right. Well, definitely as we're talking about the movie, please like interject with any stories that are real, that felt real, that felt off because... I mean, you are clearly our resident expert on this topic, so that's awesome. Mm -hmm. All right, well, if anyone needs a refresher on the movie or didn't live it in real life like you did, Mike, it's about a college dropout named Seth who isn't going anywhere in his life. He runs an underground casino to make money, but he isn't living up to his father's high standards. An old childhood friend gets him a job as a broker for a questionable suburban stockbroker firm. At first, Seth is excited by the cars and the money that he sees, but he soon realizes that the job isn't as legitimate as he first thought. As Seth tries to earn his father's respect and go legit, he finally decides to do the right thing. So James, when this movie first came out, how did it do? Did it do as well as some of these uh, high-rolling stockbrokers? Uh, well, I mean, it was a pretty decent investment for the uh, producers. It only had a $7 million budget, and it was released on March 18th, 2000. And it opened at number seven with uh, $5.7 million. So it wound up making uh, $16 million domestically, $28 million worldwide at the box office. The number one film that weekend. I'm not sure, but I believe it is the only number one film uh, for Matthew Perry in his career. I could be wrong. Uh, the whole nine yards? That's correct. Unless maybe the sequel made number one, but... The number three film that weekend was also kind of like an indie-ish film like Boiler Room. And it starred an unknown guy at the time, also uh, one of the co-stars of Boiler Room. It was the beginning of a relatively smaller franchise. Was it Triple X? Close, right actor. So Vin Diesel. It's what happens when you close your eyes and shut them real, real tight. Blink. No. Sleep. So I guess, Al, you know it. Yes, it's Pitch Black. That's right, yeah, yeah. And that wound up being uh, three films and some very good video games. Okay, so when the movie came out, did you see it right away, Mike? Were you like, oh, this is my life story for that one summer? I didn't even know about this, actually, until I was talking with a professor at Cornell, and I'm not even sure how it came up. I'm like, all right, I got to check this out sometime. The whole time you watched it, were you like, this is what I saw? This is what I was going into work every day and seeing, or not really? I mean, there were a lot of things that I was hearing that I was like, all right, we've heard this before. Things like big swinging dick, would always be closing, act as if, piker, whale, motion creates emotion, if you're telling you're not selling, all these things I've heard real people say. Like, it definitely brought me right back into that place that summer. All right, so you were surrounded by all of these finance people, and then after college, you did not go that route, was that like a conscious decision that you didn't want to go and do that like for a living? Uh, I wouldn't call these people finance people. I'd call them bullshitters. Fair. But no, I think by that point in college, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. So can you explain to me exactly what is the scam that this uh, firm is doing? I understand they're, they're selling stocks for companies that may not really exist, but also somehow they're making like $2 per stock. And then one of the other characters says, no one else can make that up. But I'm like, it's two bucks and it's $100 a share. Like, can you explain what is going on in this film? Well, what's going on, kind of what you said, a lot of these companies were somewhere between fake and sketch. And some of them were real, but definitely not what they were pumped up to be. But the brokerage, they owned all the shares. They pumped all the shares to unsuspecting clients, sold them at a lot more than what the value was. The people who were the owners, which was largely the broker who owned them, they made all that money. 
and the broker would get a dollar or two per share for, for moving that. So, I mean, it's the classic pump and dump. No one knew anything about these companies and only these guys' clients would know it. So then suddenly this company is trading five times what it was yesterday. Stock price goes up and the original shareholders, then they dump their price. And since no one else is going to buy it, since no one knows about it, it never goes up again. Pretty right? much, yeah. So I get that part. But what is the deal of how are they paying $2? Like that part I didn't understand because can't they just pay their brokers more and make less money or something? I think it becomes harder to when you have a real market because let's say JP Morgan or let's say Goldman Sachs was charging a buck and a half for every share they moved and another shop down the street, Merrill Lynch, JP, whatever – they're charging 50 cents, well, then everyone's going to move to the cheaper brokerage house, which in fact is why now, if you want to buy stock, you're probably going on to Schwab or Ameritrade or E-Trade or something like that and paying 10 bucks for the entire trade. Okay. So there were definitely a lot of these terms that I didn't understand. And I appreciate that you brought that up, James. My question is, where is the line between what is immoral, which seems to be all of it and what is illegal like is the pump and dump thing is that illegal in and of itself i don't see a scenario where it would but i'm also not a securities lawyer so i'm not getting involved in that one okay fair enough like i think part of it is that a lot of what you see in this movie is shady and wrong but like i guess i just wasn't clear like where the line was of doing something that's wrong versus doing something that is out and out illegal oh i think it's illegal because uh i mean they could find a random company in boston and hype it up i think that's fine for them to do i think the problem here is they own that fake company in boston and they're hyping it up so i think that's okay. the illegal part that's my guess at not being a stockbroker or a lawyer or anything resembling this you know it kind of made me think a little bit of of the movie we talked about with our friend Darren Rounders, where there was so much like poker lingo that I didn't get. And I was like, am I just missing out on like some of the intricacies of this movie? I felt like I just wasn't fluent in that language. And I did feel that a little bit watching this movie where they're just throwing out these terms left and right. And I'm like, I don't really get it. And, you know, I get the story of Seth and his dad and the girlfriend and all of that. But I did a little bit just feel a little bit lost. Well, now I feel bad because it's funny having seen the movie 25 times and for that matter, having briefly lived in that world, to me, all this stuff is second nature. But the one thing I would say is I think that very, very little of the terminology that you would see in this, some of the terms that I used especially, you're not going to see those in any kind of reputable financial advisory office in any kind of stock brokerage or anything like that. I would imagine so. And and I think that is a very good point that there are very nice, very good financial advisors who help people make money and don't do any of the shit in this movie. I think there's also a lot of people out there who will steal your money in a second. There's always going to be a, a sucker born and not even a sucker. Anyone could fall for this scam. Well, you know, with uh, some of these fake companies that they prop up, a lot of them were medical based companies. And it kind of made me think of the whole Theranos story where a lot of very rich, very smart people were taken in by that company. 
and you know Elizabeth Holmes specifically, and that company didn't do anything. It's not exactly the same as you know trading stocks for these dummy companies, but you're absolutely right, James, that if there's a scam out there and there's a way to rip people off, people are gonna do it. Like yeah. crypto? Like crypto. Crypto just fucking imploded. Uh, NFTs, were they always a scam? I kind of always thought so. Pyramid schemes made off. I mean, like, this shit happens all the time, constantly. Uh, I will correct you. Scam is different than stupid. NFTs were never a scam. I think NFTs were always stupid. There's a big difference between that. You but know? what is that difference? I'm just playing well, devil's advocate. Because if people hyped up NFTs to you and were like, this is the single greatest investment ever... How is that all that different from what Giovanni Ribisi and the people in this movie are doing? They're telling you lies to inflate the value. It's a con game. They're still selling at the end of the day an actual stock and a stock still has value. Even if in this particular case, it was a worthless stock. Um, I wonder if Mike, have you ever been to an underground casino? No. I used to go to them like once in a while. Like Really? I went a couple times. There were these like underground poker games and uh, GMI Rabisi's character he uh, he runs a little casino and that's what he's doing at the beginning of the movie right right and we know all about what's happening in Seth's life Seth is Giovanni Rabisi's character because there's voiceover and you know this movie I think does do the wrong kind of voiceover the entire beginning monologue I thought was stupid and unnecessary where he's talking about how he's in with these finance guys, but he doesn't really necessarily believe it. It's unnecessary because you see it on his face. Giovanni Ribisi is a good actor and you get what he's thinking. You get that he's not with these other guys. He's with them, but he's not really into it. And then there's a scene where Seth is talking to Abby, his love interest, and he's talking about his father. And the only reason he's doing anything is to get his father's approval. And it's like a well-acted scene. He's crying. And like you, you get the, the emotion from this story that he's telling. And then right after, there's a voiceover where he says, well, I was really trying to get my father's approval, but I wasn't getting it. And that made me upset. I was like, no shit. We just saw that scene. The voiceover was completely redundant and I thought annoying. I figured you would say that. You figured right. Al, I think we do know you pretty well on that. <laughs> but the voiceover in the beginning, there were a couple of things he said, and it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Who's doing it? Who's buying this stuff? It's people who want to get in early, so to speak. That's why they maybe haven't heard of some of these companies, but they think it's still a good idea. FOMO. And yeah, FOMO. I mean, everybody wants to make a quick buck, not work hard for it, and they see it all around them. Maybe the neighbor's got a fancy new car and they want that too, but their $20 an hour job or $10 an hour job, that's not going to buy them that. Well, to be fair, they're trying to invest in a pharmaceutical. So, I mean, it's like investing in Moderna when they were in the first uh, stages of their uh, you know, COVID vaccine. It's not, in theory, uh, in a moral way, they're not investing in you know trying to find uh, gold in uh, ocean water or something. But uh, unfortunately, these people are deluded. There's a great scene where they cold call this doctor and he's like, you know, he's super busy and a uh, really well cast doctor, I will say. He looks very doctory. Like, I've worked for this guy before. For. <laughs> and uh, it's Vin Diesel doing a fantastic uh, sale to this guy. And he's like, yeah, we can only sell you 6,000 shares. And these are like probably 100 bucks a share. And he's like, 6,000, that's way more than I wanted. Wait a second. Why only 6,000? And you know what I knew that scam from? Bernie Madoff. 
Like that was the classic Bernie Madoff scam. You had to be invited because it was unbelievable, like, you know, 15, 20% yearly returns. And when you get in, you're only allowed to invest 300,000 the first year. So 300,000, I wasn't thinking of putting that, but wait, why only? And then you put every buck in and I mean, it's, it's a classic scam. I, I thought uh, Vin Diesel in that scene was fantastic. I really like Vin Diesel in this movie. This is the first movie we've done on the podcast where you see Vin Diesel. We've heard him in The Iron Giant. We will do Saving Private Ryan eventually when we are just in the mood to be horrifically depressed. Uh, But I liked him in this role because I think of Vin Diesel as the guy in Pitch Black. I think of him as an action guy. And in this movie, he's not. He's just a dude. And I don't know, I just, I liked him as just a regular guy. Yeah, I thought he was uh, really good in this film. It's one of those, you know, before he's necessarily playing Vin Diesel, Dom Toretto in uh, Fast and the Furious, like that kind of character. Not knocking it, but, you know, sort of like The Rock. People get accustomed to you uh, being a certain way. I thought he was a little different here. Also, I'm going to give credit to Ben Affleck. He's in the movie very little. He just gives this, like, ultimate douchebag uh, stockbroker pitch to these uh, trainees, makes these uh, trainees salivate at, at working at JT Marlin. He's good, and it's a quick in and out for him. I mean, I have to assume Ben Affleck was on set for this movie for, if it was more than one day, I don't know what they did wrong. Like, a weekend? Like, he must have been on set for no more than two days. But I did want to ask you, Mike, did you get that spiel when you uh, started at the company you worked at? It wasn't that spiel, but the whole Ben Affleck thing, that was definitely based on a real guy. I heard a real guy in that. Again, names not being mentioned here. Not that I expect anyone to listen to this podcast and hear that, but in any case. Oh, no, we are very big with uh, ex-financial con artists. Um were you given like some kind of pitch that kind of like sucked you in, even if it wasn't exactly like what you see in the movie? Yeah, definitely. I mean, these guys tell me that they're making 30 grand a month and yeah, it sounds awesome. Tell me this, that, the other thing. Funny thing is one of those guys was living with his parents. Really? I'm guessing he was not making what he was saying he was making. Interesting. So in the movie, Seth has like this strained relationship with his father. His father doesn't approve of what he's doing. Were your parents disapproving of the place you were working at or did they not know what it was i don't think any of us knew i don't think a lot of people really knew i mean the people who were there i kind of wonder what they knew and what they didn't know let's face it most of them weren't exactly the most educated so they weren't going to be the kinds of people who would work for goldman sachs for morgan stanley for a place like that but i don't know if they fully understood why they were making whatever it was that they were making and what the companies they were selling were really about and maybe they did maybe they didn't Right. I mean, at a certain point, if you're willfully turning a blind eye, then in my humble opinion, I'll be all judgy, but then you're culpable, right? If something is clearly too good to be true and you're just going to take the money and cash the check and not ask any fucking questions, so you're not doing anything wrong, eh, you're still doing something wrong. I didn't think about it that much at the time. I wasn't not even 19 years old. I was 18 years old. To be clear, I'm not judging you. I mean, I'm just saying you, you, you were there for two months and you, you got out. I'm sure you didn't do anything wrong. No, I wasn't good enough to do anything wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think about it, cold calling is hard. You know, like that's got to be like 
a difficult thing to do. I think all sales is hard personally. Like I'm not that great on the phone. I worked as a telemarketer one summer, which is shitty and terrible and miserable. I felt like I sucked at it. And that was just like asking like survey questions. You know, we weren't trying to sell anyone anything. Um, but it's a special breed, you know, to do this shit. Maybe you needed Seth Davis to train you. Maybe, maybe I did. And the place you worked at was on Long Island? Yeah, it was just north of the Seaford Oyster Bay. Okay. I don't think Exit 53 off the LIE is a real place. I could be wrong about that one. Well, there is an Exit 53 on the LIE, right? Is there? I think so. I was just really offended when he was talking in voiceover about, I had to go all the way far out on Long Island to Exit 53. Like, fuck you. I live off of Exit 51. And he's coming from Queens. So going from Queens to Exit 53 isn't that fucking far. Yes, it is, Al. But the no, weird, it's not. But the yes, weird thing is. is they show him driving on local roads. So what's that? Well, I mean, maybe after he got off the LIE. But no, I mean, the LIE goes up to Exit 73. And that's what someone who lives at Exit 51 says about how close he is to the city. Sorry, Al. You're broadcasting <laughs> from East 20s in Manhattan. You are far from Manhattan. You are. And that, that's okay. You live in a beautiful house and you have a gazebo. It is far from Manhattan, but it's less far from Queens. And when you're in Queens, you are right next to Nassau. You don't even have to go over a bridge to get to Long Island, which is a whole separate thing about why they call it Long Island and the border and everything. But like, it's right next to Queens. That's a 45 minute or so ride. And yes, exit 53 is a exit for the Santa Cruz Parkway. So it is a real place. Well, there you go. But that's less than an hour and you're going the opposite of traffic. So that shouldn't be an issue at all. I just felt like they were being a little harsh to Long Island in this movie. And I felt a little attacked. Aww. And I kind of feel attacked by you right now, James. Well, think about how I must feel living in Jersey now. Oh, well, if you live in Jersey, then you chose to live in a shithole. That's your own fucking fault. <laughs> Sorry, love you. This movie was written by a guy named uh, Ben Younger. The movie is obviously uh, about a Jewish guy, uh, Seth Davis. The dad is played by a fantastic actor. I love Ron Rifkin. You know him if you see Ron Rifkin. He's a, he's a great character actor. We just saw him in L.A. Confidential. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's one of those great actors. Um, I'll say this, and uh, as a Jew, Ron Rifkin. He looks like a Jew. Giovanni Ribisi, he doesn't come across as Jewish to me. Another actor, Nicky Cat, not Nicky Katz, Nicky Cat, he plays Greg Weinstein. And neither of these guys are Jewish. They don't really look the part, but um, Ben Younger, he was raised as a modern Orthodox Jew. What movie do you think Ben Younger also wrote? It's his only other uh, big film of note. And we reviewed it. Probably something that a Jewish guy would might write a screenplay about. Um, a Jewish guy that definitely wants to include his mother in a screenplay. Oh, the one about the uh, the guy and the mom was Meryl Streep, and she wanted him to date a Jewish girl, and he was dating Uma Thurman. Right, Prime. Okay, you know it's not a big thing, but once they cast Giovanni Ribisi and uh, you know, Nikki Cat, who I thought were both very good in this film, I would just rename them and i'll say even seth davis not a jewy name um greg <laughs> weinstein yeah you know, that, that that's pretty new york jewish but there's a, a couple passing lines of this isn't jewish summer camp and this isn't like the kids we knew in hebrew school 
I feel like when you cast these guys, just just rename it. You know, Ron Rifkin, again, very well cast here. I just was taken out of it a little bit. I get what you're saying. I think there's this weird thing. Maybe it's not a rule. Maybe it's like an unspoken rule, but that like Jews can play Italians and Italians can play Jews. It's just a thing I've observed. And, you know, I'm assuming Giovanni Ribisi is of Italian descent with a name like Giovanni. I'm making an assumption. Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, I think there's just this thing that like Jews, Italians, what's the difference? No one will notice. You can cross cast and that just seems to be like the rule in Hollywood. It's kind of true. It does happen. It's one of those things. And there's like this constant back and forth between Greg and Vin Diesel's character where Vin Diesel gives Greg shit for being Jewish and Greg gives Vin Diesel shit for being Italian. I don't know if Vin Diesel is actually Italian, but he is. Yes, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So that one they cast uh, correctly, I guess. The fact that they made these characters, or at least the Greg character, who's so obsessed with money that he's Jewish, eh, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. I don't know that I would have even thought about that watching this movie when it first came out. Honestly, I didn't even think about that till you said it now. I'm not calling this in any way wrong. I'm just saying it stood out to me. I have a feeling that Ben Younger's original screenplay probably dug more into them being Jewish. But I will say I didn't mind at all that Greg Weinstein was Jewish. It would only bother me if this was a Jew firm that was really scamming everyone. I, I would assume the vast majority, except for Seth and uh, and uh, Greg, are, I don't think any of them are Jewish. So everyone's an asshole. You know? They were all white. They were all white, you're right, and 100% male, except uh, one, uh, one African-American uh, secretary. Was that your experience? The- there were actually a couple women. One thing that doesn't stand the test of time is environments where people do talk like that because it's not accepted in today's workplaces, as well as, for that matter, places that are that particularly homogenous. I don't know. Maybe they do outside of New York City, and I just haven't worked outside of New York City in a while. But I think in a large corporate type setting, you probably do have a lot less homogeneity now. That's all totally fair. I can sort of imagine, like, even today in 2022, people in, like, a stockbroker-type place being racist and sexist and saying all of these horrifically inappropriate things because I have a bias of what finance bros are like. And I think a lot of that is probably informed from movies like this. And it's probably not fair. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who work in finance who are nice and kind and don't say racist, sexist shit. But that's just sort of my perception. I don't hang out in that world so much. But you don't see the racism. You don't see the overcharged testosterone, really. Fair. And maybe this has just been my experience, but the stock jocks that existed 25 years ago, those guys can't exist today. Because most stock trading these days is either done online or done through more sophisticated advisor types who are charging servicing fees as opposed to dollar per share commissions. Yeah, but these guys still exist. I mean, not this scam, but these guys did not decide, ah, I think I will now go to plumbing school and learn a trade. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's something else just scamming. It's, it's some kind of triple reverse sideways mortgage that they're selling you. You know, I, I want to say, like, I appreciated the fact that they spent time with the character Abby in this movie, who's the black receptionist who works at the firm. 
when we first saw her, I was like, oh, okay, she's just going to be like window dressing. But like they actually give her an opportunity to tell you her story and her backstory and what, what she's doing at this firm. And I, I like that character. I did feel like they gave her the shit end of the stick at the end. Like they don't resolve her story at all. Her story just abruptly ends where Seth finds out that she was talking to the feds and then he's mad at her and that's it. I think that Abby really served more as a device and as a character in a lot of ways. And yeah, obviously she is a token female and you do kind of get the sense of like why a female might be there. But I think as much as anything else, she kind of gave Seth that sounding board when he's talking about the things that he's seeing that are wrong and she's trying to help him see the ethical dilemma and eventually steer him towards the light. Right. You know, there is a line in this film that I remembered the first time I saw it. There's a bar where Greg and uh, Seth are driving, and this is what he's talking about. You know, this ain't uh, like Hebrew school. And he has this great line where he says, you know, these guys, they drive around in Porsches, but they don't have $20 in their pocket to fill up the tank. And I've known people like this. I knew, I remember in 2008, there were people that, it turns out they were never rich. They were just credit card rich. And you know, that, that BMW that they owned, they were up to their eyeballs in debt. And they kept luckily getting a new credit card that could eat up the other debt. And one of the guys, they go over to his house and he has this like huge McMansion kind of thing with a, a tanning booth and all this crap. And he has a couch in one room. He doesn't have any seats. There's like five people there. Three of them are sitting on the floor because he doesn't have anywhere for them to sit. It really fits these characters well. I'm not totally sure if I have seen this entire movie before watching it the other day for the podcast. I definitely saw that scene though. The scene where they go into the mansion and there's no furniture. And he's like, oh, did he just move in? And the other guy's like, no, what are you talking about? He's lived here for forever. And I too have known people like that. Well, they must be rich because look at that car. Look at the expensive things that they're buying. They were not rich. They were in debt. They were just faking it. And you can get away with that for a while. Not forever, you know, eventually the repo, repo depot or whatever is going to come and you're going to lose all that shit. Unless um, your scam is good enough to sell the story to Netflix and then they make a successful miniseries on your scam and then you get to be rich again. Uh, inventing Anna? Yeah. Didn't I she like sell that it? one. She sold her story, but I think the clever thing was she sold her story when she was arrested. So she's not a convict. You know, once you're convicted of a crime, you can't make money. I think that's how they got around that son of Sam law. Selling your story to Netflix is so bad. That was my Anna voice. No? I didn't see the miniseries. Oh, you're referencing the show. You didn't watch it? Did you see Squid Game? Yes, of course I did. Oh, okay. I was assuming you didn't. No, why would you assume that? I'm very into pop culture, James. That was a perfect Anna Delvey that impression. Good. That was good. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Um, just one last thing I want to talk about this film. Jimmy Ribisi's character, Seth, he's been cold calling this this guy, you know, a decent middle manager guy. And Jimmy Ribisi basically t- has this guy invest everything in his life, ruins his uh, life, uh, basically ruins his marriage. At the very end, he's able to do something that redeems him and he's able to get the guy's money back. Did you recognize that actor? No, I did. Who, who is it? Did you recognize him, Mike? No. He's the dad from Pen15. 
Oh, uh, I've never seen that show. But there's actually, I found out that there was an alternate ending. Mike, did you hear about the alternate ending for this film? When Harry shows up with the gun? Yeah, Harry, the uh, the guy that uh, Seth's character had scammed. I guess maybe he didn't realize he's been uh, compensated. He still shows up and I guess shoots out the office. He doesn't shoot up the place. I know because I rented this movie on DVD from the library. I watched the alternate ending. Ah. And basically what happens is he goes to the office with the gun in like a suitcase on his way in he passes seth they literally bump into each other harry drops his stuff the weapons or whatever seth doesn't see that and he just kind of like helps him with papers or whatever and then they walk past each other seth gets in his car harry goes into the office we don't see what happens but it's implied that, yeah, he goes in and shoots up the place. Because, of course, he doesn't know what Seth looks like. Exactly. And then there is voiceover where Seth says, I wonder whatever happened to Harry. I wonder if I'll ever bump into him. But I wouldn't even know what he looks like. Which is pointless and stupid VO because that's literally what we just saw. But really hammering it home for the audience. Not a great ending. And things, things that don't stand the test of time. What, going into an office with a gun? No, just not knowing what somebody looks like if you're going to meet them or if you're looking to find them. That is also very, very true. I did sort of think, though, that Harry's ending was abrupt and like Abby's ending, kind of a non-ending, where they make this person a character, which I like. I like that he's not just a, a voice on the phone. He is a human being whose life has been ruined by these fuckers and we spend time with him, and that's great. When you see him, like, in this house, depressed, and his wife takes the kids, I thought his story was going to end with him killing himself. That would have been really dark, but also a fair end to the story. You know, like, sometimes that shit happens. But I think Harry serves his purpose. And you contrast him with the doctor, and the doctor's not as much of a sympathetic character. Sorry, James. And <laughs> Harry is a family man whose wife and kids we see and whose regular lifestyle, not being a whale, we see. And we see him getting hurt. We see that they were victims to what was happening. And maybe the guys who worked in that isolated little office on Long Island and nobody knew where they were, nobody was ever going to see them, they weren't going to see that. Right. Neither here nor there, but I know because I looked it up. Did you just happen to know what a boiler room was? Not at all until I saw the movie. I didn't know a lot of things until I saw the movie. I knew that Duke got shut down in our freshman year of college a few months after I left. I wasn't overly shocked to hear that because some things when I was there just didn't really sound like they ended up, but I didn't really know everything. And I honestly didn't really think very much about it again until I saw the movie. Well, on that note... Mike, do you think that Boiler Room stands the test of time? Yes, it does. I think that there are financial scams out there. Those do still exist. I think that pump and dump scams absolutely exist. And I think that we're seeing some of that with things like crypto and NFTs. And I'm not a financial analyst and I'm not going to pretend to be one here. But to me, a lot of this stuff is BS. Feel free to disagree. So I think that stands the test of time. People who want to get in early, want to make that quick buck, want to find that edge. People who are jealous of that guy who they think is rich around them. Maybe, in fact, they are living in debt to have that BMW. That exists, too. That's still real. I think the cast very much stands the test of time. People like Vin Diesel, Nikki Cat, Giovanni Ribisi. Neil, is it Nia or Neil Long? I'm not sure. James? Don't ask James how to pronounce something. 
That's literally what he's famously terrible at. Nia Long, Tom Everett Scott, That Thing You Do. Right. Uh, and Giovanni Ribisi. Oh, he's also in That Thing You Do. Was he really? What was it? He's the original drummer. Oh, mm-hmm. shit. Who, and, like, breaks his arm, and that's why Tom Everett Scott gets to be in the movie. Oh, Ben Affleck was another actor. Obviously, he's gone on to bigger and better. Ron Rifkin's had steady work over the years. J.T. Marlin, or Duke and Company, as I knew it in real life, obviously did not stand the test of time. That was gone relatively quickly. (laughs) How stocks are traded doesn't stand the test of time. A bullshit guy doing quote-unquote compliance work doesn't stand the test of time. Compliance is a very real thing, especially in the wake of Enron and WorldCom. Well, don't you think, though, that there are people who work in compliance who are in on the scam that they're supposed to be regulating? Is that just me being cynical? Sure, it's out there. Not asking. Okay. So plenty does, plenty doesn't. The workplace environment, I don't think does. Maybe it does in some worlds, but definitely not really what you would see here in New York City at the very least. Um, Finance bros, I think, are at least a little bit more evolved now than they were back then. Definitely the New York City variety, maybe not the Long Island variety. I'm not going to speak to that. I'll let Alan deal with all the Long Island stuff. Sure. I think a lot of the themes here really do stand the test of time. And I think ultimately that's where I do wind up falling for that reason. Okay. All right, James, what do you think? Um, Yeah, this is another one of those films that I've seen uh, twice. When you said we're going to watch Boiler Room, it made me honestly a little bit tense because I find this film incredibly tense because of the Harry character. I find it incredibly uncomfortable to watch this poor guy get everything's taken from him. Mike, you mentioned that the doctor is unsympathetic. I think he comes across, not because he's a doctor, I think he comes across as more greedy because he goes, "Ah, I'm not looking to invest that much. Wait, how come I can only put in $60,000? Like, his life is not ruined. Whether this exists anymore, like I said, this doesn't exist because no one trades stocks this way. You know, you're right. Everyone just does seven bucks uh, E-Trade or something. But there's other ways to get scammed. I think the cast is great. I just think the film is well made. Is it brilliant? No. Is it effective at what it does? Yes. Are there mistakes uh, that I would uh, correct? Yeah. And again, the, the things I was saying before, these guys were miscast as Jews or the characters were mislabeled as Jews once these guys were cast. So that, that was just you know something I was uh, bringing up. Overall, I think the movie is uh, tight. I think the way they just come across is just real douchebags is really well done the small roles by ben affleck and tom Ever scott um i think everyone does their jobs really well and i do think the film stands the test of time what about you al i think the big thing that doesn't is like you guys said about the way stocks are traded but i don't really think that's what the movie is about i guess at its core it's about the relationship between seth and his father which honestly i think is interesting when we see it and not when we're told about it in voiceover. I know, I know I'm saying the same thing I've said a million times on the podcast, but I think those scenes are good with Giovanni Rabisi and Ron Rifkin. It's hard to watch, but I mean, as a father, I I mean, I can like a a good father-son story. I think that the story of wanting to do the right thing is interesting. I do feel like they don't stick the landing. I think part of my problem with the ending is that I'm biased based on real world stuff. Like the people who worked at the place you worked at that was shut down. Did those guys go to jail? Do you know? I know the guy who ran it did. 
He did. Yes. Okay. Um, I know a couple of other guys. They did get sanctioned by the SEC. I think those involved later scams. But some of these guys went from like one chop shop to the next for a little while. And that's exactly what these guys do. Yeah, and I think that's sort of my problem with the ending of the movie, where it really just ends abruptly with Seth leaving the firm and the FBI is coming. But I don't really buy that these guys are really going to suffer real consequences. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Maybe it doesn't matter because it's not about the Ben Affleck character and how much jail time he does. The movie's about Seth reconciling with his father. Cool. I get it. But I kind of want to know what happens to those fuckers who ruined all these people's lives. I want to know what happens to Abby. Does she go down with them? Is she blamed? I mean, you can also kind of imagine that, right? Like when Tom Everett Scott's character, the guy who runs the firm, when he's dragged in for questioning. Blame the little black lady? Exactly. Is that what's going to happen? And he can afford a high-priced lawyer and she can't. And does she go down for all of that shit? I just would have liked to know a little bit more about what happens. And yes, I would have complained if it was all just voiceover of this happened to that character and that happened to this person. I don't know. I felt like I wanted a little bit more. I am going to say that the movie does stand the test of time because it's about scams. It's about schemes. It's about ripping people off. That will always stand the test of time. And I just thought that the acting was really good. Giovanni Ribisi should be doing more stuff. I kind of don't understand why he's not headlining more movies. I think he's really, really great in this movie. Vin Diesel has a small part, but I think he's a good actor in this movie. And again, I don't think of him as an actor. I think of him as the muscle-bound guy from Fast and Furious. His character is very real. Ben Affleck's character is very real. Yeah. Um... The Neo Long character, I'm sure she is real. The receptionist person at Duke was a little bit different. But, yeah, I mean, many of these characters, one way or another, were at least based on a real person, some group of real people taking on different characteristics of each. I mean, there is a lot of real there. There definitely, like, is more in this genre where maybe you don't know everything that happens to, like, every one of these people. But you kind of get that much more of a sense by looking at Wolf of Wall Street, which is really coming from a different perspective. The guy who's running the show as opposed to one of the rank-and-file people who's seeing it. So you're seeing it from a different perspective. Even for that matter, Wall Street, which is a little bit different in a lot of ways, but it takes you into that kind of environment. And they kind of acknowledge that film. They acknowledge Glengarry Glenn Ross as well. You know, it's funny you bring that up. I haven't seen either of those movies, Wall Street or Glengarry Glen Ross. I did see Wolf of Wall Street, but I have read that this movie is kind of derivative of those movies and unoriginal and kind of ripped off some of uh, those plot points. I can't speak to that because I've never seen them. Maybe we should have done a trilogy with all of those movies together, or maybe not because we would have thoroughly depressed ourselves. Glengarry was hard to watch. I could imagine that. Wall Street was better. I mean, you had good acting in Wall Street, which I think was really what made it. It was, what, Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen were the two lead roles? And I, Oliver Stone directed. Yes. And Wall Street 2 was, was also very good in the wake of the subprime crisis. One thing that's going to make you happy, Al, and going to make me really happy, is Giovanni Ribisi is starring in this year's number one film. Uh, Top Gun, colon, Maverick? 
No, the film that you said is going to be a major flop and I said will be the number one film of the year. Oh, Avatar 2, colon, water with water, <laughs> blue people in water. <laughs> yeah, that one. He was in the first Avatar and he is signed on for the sequels. Neat. But not as a star, right? He wasn't a main character in the first Avatar, was he? No, no. He was like the executive of the company. Yeah. He was good in that movie. I mean, small role. But Mike, thank you for coming back on the show. It was great seeing you. It was great talking to you about this movie and finding out this uh, thing about your past that I had no idea about. This was fascinating. It was fun. It's always fun to hang with you guys. Always, always a good time. Uh, We'll have you back again. Do you have another movie in mind? I think I want to do something lighter next time. Okay. Maybe, I know you talked about doing this once and you hadn't done it. Maybe something like Toy Story we could do. Interesting. Maybe, Maybe another just like fun Disney movie from that era. Okay, all right. Toy Story 3 came out in 2010. So we're still a couple years out from being able to do Toy Story 1, 2, and 3. And I would love to rewatch 3. We'll circle back on that. You're welcome anytime is the is the point. Yay! Come back whenever you like. It's always good to hang out and uh, and chat about whatever movie. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about Tootsie. I have never seen this movie. I've heard of it. I know of it, but I've never seen it. And it's celebrating its 40th anniversary, so it's high time I've seen Tootsie. You know what that really means, though. What's that? We're old. (laughs) That is true. Have you seen Tootsie, James? I've seen it once. I don't remember much about it except for the premise. Got it, got it. Well, I'm looking forward to that episode. Until then, of course, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us, the Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you're listening to this episode right away, go to nixmarathon.org. You can follow Nick's Marathon on social media. It's at Nick's Marathon on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make a tax-deductible donation or just go to the site, watch us, click into the chat, say hello, tell us that you listen to the podcast. We love it when the two worlds collide. Nick's Marathon and Test of Time. It's always fun. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. Donating money to Nick's Marathon is so VIP.